Welcome back, everybody. I Yeah, I'm in a car. This is uh, pain information in a car. And so what am I doing in the car? Coming back from the coast. I've had kind of an eventful three weeks, and I'm still trying to get my equipment back in order. And it's coming. It's coming kind of slow. But it's coming. So last week, I uh, had honor and, I guess the distinct luckiness of being at the eclipse i just happened to be in anderson south carolina for some business and i met some really nice docs down there and spent some time with them and then i went and tried to find a place to see this thing so i jump in the car and it's just about ready to start so i can just barely see the edge on the sun and i'm not going to look directly at the sun even with those glasses because i don't know they call me paranoid, but yeah, I'm paranoid. And so <clears throat> what I did was I went to the high school, too many people. Uh, then I went to, to the middle school, too many people. I don't know Anderson. So then I went to the elementary school, and I went out back in the elementary school. <clears throat> and it's, uh, it's, really, <clears throat> it's really nice back there. You know, it's hardly anybody there. And... So, good. Okay, I got a pretty good view because if you don't know North Carolina and South Carolina, it's like living uh, in a shag carpet. There are trees everywhere, and you can't see the horizon very well. So, as it is, the sun is directly overhead. So, I pull out my camera and the 300-millimeter lens I had on it, and I uh, take the viewfinder out, flip it around. It's one of those kinds. And this is a DSLR. It's one of those big cameras. So I, okay, I pointed up, and I'm looking at the sun through the DSLR. And I can only do it for a few seconds at a time because that big 300-millimeter lens is like a magnifying glass on an ant, and it's going to fry my camera and my sensor. And so I told my wife, Kathy, I said, you know, I may sacrifice this camera for a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience because, yeah, okay, clever boy here did not plan ahead to get a filter. I don't know if I could have found a filter. I mean, those things have been sold out for months. But So I'm standing there, and in the hour and a half leading up to totality, I'm listening all around me, and I'm hearing a Texas accent. I'm looking over there, and there's a Japanese couple, and they're monster camera. I don't know how they got it in the United States uh, without sending over a small boat. But they were they were there, and people from all over the country were there. Connecticut and every all points everywhere. Mexico, Canada. All right, starting to get closer to to totality, and I'm having to slow down on my camera a little. But I'm getting some pictures. I can't believe it. I'm the worst photographer on the planet. But I'm kind of getting some, and so I'm kind of strutting around. You know, what settings are you using? And uh, uh, 4300 ISO 100 yeah that's exactly what I'm using of course my camera is not that good and I was of course not using those settings but it sounded good so there we are and um, it's getting close to totality it's eerie outside and it's starting to get quiet and it's starting to get real quiet and I, earlier on I was pointing out to the Texan uh, he was a chain smoker. Must have been the Marlboro man. But you know, uh, look at the birds. They all started going into the trees, 
and all the cattle started kind of herding together. It's a little rural area, you know. And eventually the parking lot lights came on. Now, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect the parking lot lights. Uh, so, all right, they're on, and it's getting closer to totality. I have, uh, as a child, seen a near-total eclipse. I've seen one. So I wasn't going to miss this. I knew one thing. If you don't see totality, you've seen 50% of the show. I don't care how close. A little sliver, whatever. And it's coming down to the sliver. Sure enough. And the camera's holding up. When it gets to totality, I can just click away because um, it's not going to burn the sensor up. So, okay, it's totality. Dark. And the crickets come out. And the cicadas come out. And... It's it's weird. Everything stops. The horses lift their leg kind of up in the air, and kind of like, um, I got to get off. Hang a sec. Sorry, that, that's the exact same place I got cut off in the last one. So I didn't want to blow this, and I almost blew it. So, um, all right, so the horse is like looking like it wants to go to sleep. Everything wants to go to sleep. And it's in the middle of the day. Uh, it's like uh, 1.38 or something like that. And it's dark. And all of a sudden, you look up where this thing is at, and it went boom. This big circle, this corona, this spectacular show has just defined the exact reason why totality is totally incredible. Um and it lasts for about a minute and a half in Anderson. It was just unbelievable. It was just, what do you do to explain it? You can't. you got to live it. And, yeah, there's another one in seven years. Get your Indianapolis uh, uh, room now. So then it started to come out. And when it came out from totality, it's like um, staring in an LED light. It just, it takes your eyes that have just acclimated. And there you go. There you go. It, it, it's just like, whoa, is that bright? The temperatures dropped. The cicada are out. They don't know what's going on. You know, they're, I'm sure they're kind of like, what? We got to wake back up. Oh, come on. This is like a bad dream. And it was a bad dream for them. So, um, it, all right. It starts getting bright fast. And I mean fast. And so what what happened next was, um, <laughs> I can tell you, it, it, there were a lot of people uh, in the line of the shadow. And um, Interstate 85 um, was over there. And I wanted to get to Interstate 85 and start getting up the road. Home is only two hours and 15 minutes away. Okay, eight and a half hours later, um, I got home. It it was incredibly packed, but I met some really cool people. What I am absolutely kicking myself over is I didn't interview them. Um, I got so wrapped up with this thing, I didn't pull out the microphone. I had it with me. I had everything with me. And I was going to do the Eclipse edition of uh, podcast on the way home. But I'm telling you, it was, it was just too much. It was too much. I'd gotten up oh dark thirty the night before to prepare for this thing, and or a day before, and um, 
you know, same thing that day. And so I'm on hour 19 or something like that. So hello, med school, right? Okay. <clears throat> well, people, go see it. It's uh, something you will thank me for. And I, I know it just doesn't sound cool. And I don't mind nerding out and telling you all about this because uh, I want you to plan ahead. you got to plan ahead now. Because people that have seen this, they're going to want to see the next one. And it's coming up. So, anyway. <clears throat> I was talking to my dear friend Carolyn on the way home today from the coast. And she had a long drive, too. And I asked her, uh, I said, uh, well, what, what's a great topic? She's, uh, she's a practitioner. And she's uh, uh, worked with me and around me for well over a decade. And we have uh, great conversations and one of the conversations we had today is why do people think gabapentin is going to be a drug of abuse? Now, that's a rotten brand name. And I'm starting to get letters in the mail. Did you know your patient is on gabapentin? Yeah, I knew that. Did you know they're also on an opioid? Yep, I know that. Are you aware? And it goes blah, blah, blah. Well... My days with gabapentin go way back, and I've talked a little bit about it on the podcast. They go back to 1994. It started out as a letter to the editor, and we then picked this drug up as an alternative to phenytoin and some other nasty drugs like Tegretol that required blood uh, monitoring, that required some uh, monitoring of side effects, um, and gabapentin looked clean. And we needed it for a number of things. Radiculopathy, central pain disorders, which we didn't call them that then, a number of things. And pain, pain docs just jumped on it. Originally, it was an anticonvulsivant. I'm all but sure it was uh, designed in Germany, and it sat on the shelf forever. So Park Davis had it back then, and Park Davis is, was bought out, and et cetera, et cetera. But um, so <clears throat> this drug is going to be a neat drug. So I was involved in a little bit of studies and stuff like that. But um, the the thing that became very clear is gabapentin is opioid sparing. You can use less opioid. Just like, That's why they put uh, Tylenol in um, a lot of these hydrocodone, Percocet, uh, oxycodone prep- preparations. That's opioid sparing. You use less opioid. <clears throat> and... We found out, or we didn't really know, but we eventually found out it enhances stage four sleep. Therefore, it helped fibromyalgia. I did a little study with Park Davis on fibromyalgia, and it was, uh, I have a thousand patients a day, or a thousand pieces of data, pages, 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 uh, about gabapentin um, from our patient study. And it was a really good study. So, I. I published it in different ways. I didn't publish it directly, and there's a story behind that. But um, <clears throat> the point is this. Uh, in all those years, we're, we're into over two decades, I, I have never seen somebody abuse this drug. Now, I'm sure it's going to happen. People abuse Starbucks. Um, you watch out. You know, the, those, your dog wants that pup cup. And... I, I do hear about people abruptly discontinuing this drug, which we did all the time without withdrawal. Now they say taper it. 
And I, you know, I think I've seen about every freaking side effect you can see from gabapentin. Mostly a little bit of ankle edema, a little bit of somnolence, which goes away. Um, some people, they just don't like it. And some people get headaches with, with everything. If you go through the PDR, uh, every drug in the PDR uh, will give somebody a headache. And that's just the way it is, because that's how studies are done for the FDA. Anything that somebody reports has got to get uh, in the insert. So, whatever. And gabapentin is clean, clean, clean. Uh, the therapeutic index is high. Uh, I mean, you you almost have to really, 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 really want to try to hurt yourself uh, with gabapentin. It's hard to hurt yourself. And so we had people on very high doses, 3,600 milligrams, which crazy high but um we had to do that the reason we had to do that is some people just didn't respond there weren't any really good central acting drugs um and it seemed to be pretty safe but also it had crappy absorption real crappy absorption so uh you had to sometimes take uh, patients way up but then they excreted it whole anyway without being metabolized or used um, so, uh, along come the long-acting forms of gabapentin, uh, gastrotenic technology, uh, brand name is Graylease, uh, Horizon is another one that uses a little different technology, that's the brand name, <clears throat> both good drugs, and it it's, has better absorption now, so we're getting better at gabapentin, but now this big question is going to come up with insurance companies and with uh, regulatory agencies, is this an, the next drug of potential abuse? Uh, and, okay, question mark, why would it be? Well, we know that promethazine um, it, it is uh, a drug that potentiates uh, opioids, like 1 plus 1 equals 3, right? And people like to be on promethazine uh, and some other drugs that potentiate the opioid because it pushes the opioid. The classic is a benzodiazepine. It just makes the opioid high higher. And the feeling more feelable. So what what gabapentin is probably doing that. And Carolyn asked me what I thought about it and I'm going to work on that. And uh, I'm actually going to call some of these uh, PhD geniuses that I know um, that work with pharmacology and just see uh, what their thoughts are. My, my feeling is people just want the potentiation or they just want to feel relaxed. You can take, take a couple of gabapentin and, and the nice thing about it is it enhances stage four sleep. You're going to sleep better. So, all right, that's my thought there. All right, next topic. Um, she also brought up something that's very important, and, and I tell you, I do this too. I gloss over stuff. I assume people know what I'm talking about, and I I get that. Okay, is it a nerve block or is it an epidural? Well, as she correctly points out, a nerve block is where you isolate a specific motor or sensory nerve. Motor makes your your muscles move or your leg move or your arm move, and sensory is a feeler. And <clears throat> so you feel things. Hot, cold, pressure. Um, you get it. So motor and sensory tend to be mixed. 
A nociceptor is normal if it hurts. There's two types of nociceptors. That's a pain nerve, A delta and C. Okay? A delta is very fast, very electric-like, pins and needles. C is dull, aching, throbbing, bone hurt, bone break. And there are different kinds of pains. One's well localized, one's not. One's new, the A delta. Phylogenetically, that means within the uh, realm of our evolutionary state. And um, C fiber nociception is very old. Well, when we're doing a nerve block, depending on the concentration of the local anesthetic and the type of the local anesthetic we use, we are affecting an inhibition of the nociceptor or else of the motor end. So this is the deal. If I give a low-density local anesthetic like lidocaine, that's 1%, for example. That's 10 milligrams per mil, or, or it's 10 mil, geez, it's 10 milligrams, 10 cc's. So um, if I give that 1% lidocaine, it's going to be very different than if I give 4% lidocaine or 40 milligrams. The 40 milligrams, okay, sorry about that. Uh, batteries went dead, pulled over, changed batteries. So we were talking about concentration of local anesthetics and Dense, longer-acting local anesthetics as opposed to short-acting uh, local anesthetics that aren't as dense uh, in their concentration uh, tend to act differently. The nerve blocks that we would do with dense, long-acting local anesthetic would be like for an operation where you don't want something to move like an arm and you want there to be a very uh, relaxed arm and a nerve that is almost completely blocked. And a <clears throat> epidural injection, non-labor epidural, you'll want a very uh, light concentration, um, and you don't necessarily want to make that, that leg completely numb and get a strong motor blockade because um, it'd go right out from under it. But... This takes us back to the bigger picture. Okay, what are we doing when we say we're doing something? So now you know we use local anesthetics. We sometimes use steroids. I'm not a big fan of steroids. And Lax Manticanti, sorry, phone went off. Lax Manticanti um, did a study where uh, he looked at saline. And he looked at uh, local anesthetic, steroid, and the like in the epidural space or use for epidural or for nerve block, uh, primarily uh, epidural, and there, was, there wasn't much difference. So it might be a washout effect from the saline or it could be a stabilization effect at the nerve level from the local anesthetic. Um, we don't know, but... Uh, it's important to understand that there's those kind of studies out there, and we have to look at them all. And there's another study that was in New England Journal, I'm pretty sure it was New England Journal, uh, that looked at epidurals and say, ah, they don't work. Well, it was done, I believe, by a neurologist that, uh, not nothing against neurologists, but it's just, it's just a different uh, specialty. Um, it didn't 
t- talk about it, it was it fluoroscopically guided was it a caudal epidural was it an inner laminar epidural was it a nerve block he, i don't think he, he separated that out well so i think the methodology was poor so this brings us back to what are we thinking and talking about when we're talking about doing blocks yes carolyn you're right a nerve block is both diagnostic and therapeutic tells us like a roadmap is this um where you're hurting is it the l5 nerve so it's very specific and it can have a little steroid in there so it can be very therapeutic too now an inner laminar block is a it's broad brush stroke it goes in the away from the nerve per se it goes into the epidural space and is very generalized it doesn't go into a direct nerve so um when we're talking a nerve block, we're specific. When we're talking about an inner laminar epidural, we're not so specific. Yeah, we might get the level right, and we might get all that right, but it's not as specific as a nerve block. Okay, some of these other blocks. When we talk about, um, say, for pelvic pain, um, and we've had Plancarti on. I've interviewed him um, for the hypogastric plexus, inferior hypogastric plexus. Uh, there's the superior hypogastric plexus. And then there's a celiac plexus for pancreatic pain. So it's diagnosis specific. And a plexus is a group of nerves that come together and it's, it's around the spine. And in the case of the uh, celiac plexus, it's around the aorta. Uh, but they can be very effective. So yeah, that is a kind of a nerve block, but it isn't a specific nerve. It's a group of nerve called a plexus. Okay. I also might think of a block like a stellate ganglion block. Um, that's uh, in the neck, and there's really a couple ways to do it, but point being taken, it's a group of nerves, just like the plexus, that come together that have a specific function at, uh, at target points. So say you have CRPS, or if you have a peripheral neuropathy that's unspecified, uh, and it's in the upper extremity, you can do a stellate ganglion block. Okay, so let's bring it on home because I am almost home. The, uh, the point is, yes, ask exactly what kind of block this is because block is like car. There's a car in the parking lot. However, some are red Ferraris. Uh, some not so much. So... My advice to anybody that gets an interventional procedure, write down the procedure you had and what they put in there. Because you'd be surprised how much steroid adds up. It adds up. And, yeah, you get a steroid dose pack when you have sinusitis, and then you get a couple of trigger point injections, and then you get a couple of interventional procedures like, say, an epidural. You get it. You start getting a lot of uh, steroid over the year, then it's a problem. Generally speaking, just straightforward nerve blocks, the amount of steroid you're getting isn't usually a problem. You know, caveat, if you're a diabetic, watch that blood sugar. So, okay, uh, this is uh, pain management in a car. This is an informational show, so I uh, appreciate you, you listening. And if you would uh, leave me a review at iTunes, iTunes it really it really helps me uh, rank. And um just go to iTunes. It's pretty straightforward. Um, so I hopefully within the next episode at least we'll have some new equipment and start getting this thing up and done right. But uh, 
you know, leave me a, a request for whatever you want to talk about on paininformation.com. And I, I enjoy uh, everything that people send me. And um, I enjoy reading the, <laughs> uh, the comments about my uh, my foray into a rainstorm and my computer. I uh, appreciate the support, everybody. Uh, that disk drive's dead. We tried. But anyway, um, we're rebuilding. And uh, I will be seeing you soon. Take care.